For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my pleasure to share the word with you today. We're going to be looking at John chapter 6. If you have one of these, does anybody even have one of these anymore? I have them. You know the difference between this and a cell phone? A cell phone gives you a sound bite. This gives you a panoramic view. That's the difference. Just a quick revelation, I'm sure. So, all right, John chapter 6. We've been drawing out of John's gospel passages that uh, display or lead us to contemplate God's glory, His presence, and the accompanying weight or feltness and the effect it has or should have upon our lives here and now. When God's Spirit shows up, you can feel Him. <laughs> it's weighty. And uh, today, though, I'm going to approach John 6 just a little bit different maybe than, than you've heard. Not that it's uh, uh, anything new. I'm not saying that. But I want you to think about it as we go through the Scriptures. And John chapter 6 is one fluid movement where we look at Jesus dis, um, encountering and drawing out his disciples, bringing them in to a closer experience and a deeper understanding of him. I want you to kind of hold that in your mind as we go through this today because it's easy to look at these stories and see them isolated and they're quite extraordinary, each one of them. But I want you to see that continuous flow and look at it from that perspective of imagine yourself being one of the disciples with him. And hopefully we'll see some of the ways that God works uh, in, our, uh, in the discipleship process to bring that sense of weight and glory. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, it says, My thoughts are not like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could... Uh, you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth's, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. This being true, one can see the potential challenges and the possible inner anguish you might go through in coming into these higher thoughts, higher imaginations. It's a whole different way of life. And we don't get through it without some conflict and turmoil. We just don't. It's hard to learn new things. When we become deeply entrenched in a certain way that we perceive the world, and when Jesus comes and turns that whole thing upside down, there's going to be some challenges that come along with it. He's kind and he's patient. And when we travel through John 6 today, I'm going to present it as one full movement, placing emphasis on the discipling. Um, if we recall from the prologue of John, these verses will catch a glimpse of John's passion in recalling the, the, Jesus, uh, that Je the way that Jesus built faith in the disciples' hearts. And so in John cha uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, he came into the wor very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They were reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the Word became human and made His home among us. 
He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And so it seems that John's telling of the story, when we compare it to the other Gospels, they seem like more like historical narrative when they're told. But John, when he's talking, there's a sense of immediacy in his storytelling, the way he's presenting it. And so I think that John put together this chapter with that in mind. There's three main stories that flow as one. The first is the feeding of the 5,000. The second is the storm on the sea. And finally, there's the teaching of the people at Capernaum. And so let's open that up. In John 6, verses 1 through 6, this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time of the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he said, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Okay, there's some kind of important points here I want to draw out. First, in the minds of the people all around, everywhere in the whole nation, it was near the time of Passover. That's important to recognize. So their thoughts would be like uh, our Advent season when we're getting ready for Christmas. We're, we're, we're kind of full of the season. And it's all, in the, it's all in the forefront of our mind, if you will. Jesus knew what he was going to do. <laughs> he knew what he was going to do. And so then he talks to Philip. He just calls Philip and he says, Philip, he goes, where can we buy some bread for all these people? Now, Philip, if my uh, resources are telling me true, was from around the area where this occurred. There's a little town named Bethsaida there. And uh, Philip is probably thinking, there's not enough bread in the county for all these people. <laughs> He's immediately faced in his heart with the impossibility of the task. It's just not. There's, just, there's not a, and then so then what the what the disciples do in the rest of this part uh, part of the story is they all start working, looking at what they have. What do they have? You know, well we can we could do this. You know, and I think if one of them, Andrew says, uh, I think it's Andrew that says, uh, well we have these two fish and these five loaves. Maybe maybe we can do something with that. Now that's a cool thing because Jesus says, well it's enough. And so he says, sit them down in, in groups of 50, and uh, we'll feed them. And so he multiplies the loaves. <laughs> he multiplies the loaves and the fish, these 5,000 men. We know how many people, 15,000 maybe. But he multiplies it. And <laughs> I couldn't help but chuckle when I read it because, in my experience, our God is a God of multiplication. And so, you know, here... I know the disciples are not seeing this yet, but anything you bring to Jesus, he will multiply it. In fact, the first command in the Bible is go and multiply. <laughs> and so God just has a way of doing this. And there's this beautiful song that was in the 90s, Ron Canoli sang it, and it was called Use Me. And, it's, and it sang a song about this right here. Lord, what I have may not be much, but I know it can multiply with your touch. And so that just as a part of this. So, so anyway, Jesus is drawing them into this story and this event of what he's going to do. And so he multiplies the bread and he feeds the people. And I mean, it's, 
But John just tells it in these few verses. Like, not a big deal, you know? And, but these 5,000 people are all fed, and then they get up and they're satisfied, and what happens is... Uh, What happens is they're, um, the people are really stirred up and uh, they want to make Jesus king and so he withdraws off into a quiet place. But I want to tell you about the Passover time, why it was important. The Passover was an incredibly important festival to the Jews. Anticipation would have been very high. It went right to their sense of identity. They really became people because of the original Passover event. It marked the final judgment upon Egypt through an act of obedience, putting the blood on the doorpost. Uh, They were spared from death of the firstborn and delivered in haste from oppression. It's helpful to remember a few facts about the Exodus story. Pharaoh had tried to kill all the male babies to regulate the population. God had caused the multiplication. He had identified Israel as his firstborn. God simply visited Pharaoh's own judgment upon him. In short, the deliverance marked the beginning of Israel as the chosen covenant people of God. And so when we're talking about challenging the Passover, we're talking about challenging the very identity of the people. What they, how they viewed themselves, how they saw themselves. And uh, most of you have followed Jesus long enough to know that that identity thing gets a little thrown into the tumbler. <laughs> and so this is what Jesus is doing. And so he does this little mini manna situation where he brings bread into the teaching. He draws the disciples into it. He multiplies the bread. The people are thinking about all of this. They're thinking about that bread. They're thinking about the Exodus. And Jesus speaks right into that situation. The things that God does are a part of the normal flow of everything that's going on. He'll engage us in our culture or in our lives in those things that are actually happening with us and draw us into those stories. And, and, and that's been my experience. And so, so anyway, we have the crowd gets mo- uh, worked up a little bit. I think that Jesus drew his disciples into the vent. He wants, his, he wants our participation. And so he does it. He, he's... Uh, the crowd or the mob gets worked up. They want to make Jesus king. But he doesn't, ta- he, wasn't, he doesn't submit to them. He moves away. He goes off into a quiet place. Evening comes and the disciples get in a boat. And uh, they head across. It says it in the middle of the night. Uh, in the middle of the night, uh, Jesus meets them out there. And so here's the story, John 6, 16 through 21. It says, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to get him in the boat. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> That's what the verses say. And they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. This is John's whole telling of that story. And immediately follows this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus withdraws, the disciples get in the boat, and Jesus waits until they're out in the middle of the lake. And they're not so terrified of the lake, 
or the storm, at least in this telling. But what they are terrified of is Jesus. He comes walking out in the middle of the lake. And if you look at the geography on the thing, I mean, they're right in the middle of the lake. And so the waves are boisterous and it's, it's, a, it's just terrible. And so anyway, Jesus comes and walks to him out in the middle of that dark time. And his voice, he says, he called out to them and says, don't be afraid, I am here. They were terrified. From the day that Jesus called the disciples, he called them into liminal space. Liminal space is when you're in this place of change and upheaval. Uh, it's easy to kind of understand it if you think about a, a woman when she gets pregnant, probably mostly the first time. First time she gets pregnant, man, everything is about to change. She's got this mix of excitement, but she doesn't know what her future is really like. She's all full of these different worries and different things, you know, about this child and, and whatnot. And all of a sudden, the woman she was before having the child is going to be no more forever. And when she has the child, she's now going to take on the mantle of mother. And that's going to change her whole life. That's a good picture of liminal space. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them, come follow me. They left everything. They entered into liminal space. They didn't know what their future was going to be. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They were excited with anticipation. It's very similar. And now here they are. They're in the middle of these miracles. They're seeing Jesus manifest presence and glory of God Almighty himself, healing people, casting out demons, doing all kinds of stuff. It's exciting. Now he feeds 5,000 people, and they're out in the middle of this lake. And why did John put it there? I think John put it there because of what was going to happen the next day or two. And so Jesus has got them out in the middle of this space, and now they're getting ready. Jesus is going to lead them into conflict. It's going to become difficult, but they don't know that. He's going to preach a sermon that's going to set things on edge the next day in Capernaum. And that's what the third story is about. But anyway, here they are, and they're in the middle of this place. And I believe that Jesus put, or John put this in there, and I think that Jesus did these actions this way to drive deep in the hearts of the disciples faith and confidence in him when it gets dark. I think it was like a preliminary time. Now, I'm telling you that when you follow Jesus, he's going to take you into healing. He's going to heal you. He's going to change you. He's going to bring you into godliness, godlikeness, to do the things that he does. And it's not like we're just going to carry him along and he breaks out every once in a while. He wants to do a real deep inside job. He wants us to become fully human. He wants us to become reflectors of the nature of God, the original idea of God, the imago Dei of God, to be his representatives in this world, to do the works that he did. And how is he going to get us from this lowly sinful state to that? He's going to bring us into power encounters, and they're going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> they're going to be exciting. They're going to be very exciting, but they're going to be uncomfortable, and they're going to cause conflict around you in the world. I know for me, I had lots of different struggles with my family and stuff. And, uh, you know, there were relationships that broke off. People started looking at me like I was kind of weird. I was really excited about Jesus when he got a hold of me. I was so glad to be set free. But I have gone through those dark times 
A couple of times in my life, I don't want to take the time to tell the stories, but a couple of times when God was doing a major shift or a major change in my life, I found myself on the sea. A place of darkness where my misunderstanding of what was going on and my inability to comprehend what he was doing. And I would lay there in that dark place. Once it was in a hospital room in Washington. And I said, Jesus, I can go through anything if I know you're with me. I was just going through this horrible transitional time. And God sent a lady and I heard this voice, I'm here. And I could tell you that whole story takes too long. I got another story I want to tell. I'm going to take my little bit of time and tell you another story. <laughs> but anyway, you follow my drift. He does this miraculous feeding, and then he does this. He, he trains, the, he brings his disciples through this dark time in preparation for what's to come. Oh, Selah, hear that. Hear me. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. But these things that he's doing are preparations for the works he wants to take us into. And we're all going to go through these things. And they're exciting. Our stories. But you know what? We have to believe. We have to receive. That's our part. And we're going to see that in these verses. And so anyway, I see often, so, so often I see people start to come into difficulties and Jesus has created this teachable moment. And sometimes when God creates this teachable moment in our hearts and we want to jump the fence, we want to escape the discomfort of the transitional process. But we don't want to do that. So I want to tell you a quick story about, because it's a communion Sunday, I think I have a few minutes and then I'm going to need to get to move quickly. It was a Monday, Thursday. I think it was about 1985. I was a relatively new Christian. I was in a small group with four or five men. And this one brother was particularly arrogant. I, you know, because I could see around my own beam pretty good to see his arrogance. <laughs> and we were young. And he comes to this group one morning and he goes, he, of course, he smoked like a freight train, which doesn't matter. I'm not picking on smokers here. <laughs> But he smoked like a freight train, and we're having breakfast, and we're having this meeting, and, and he's going on about how dead he is to himself, you know, waxing eloquently about his spirituality. And finally, I just had enough. I said, if you're, I said, if you're so dead to yourself, why are you smoking them stinking cigarettes? Now, you have to remember, I had been delivered from smoking, so I was particularly self-righteous. And so I launched into this brother, and I mean, and I got him on the defensive, and he went from fight to flight in about two seconds. And man, I went in for the kill, because that's what hot-headed, half-saved Irish boys do. <laughs> and I dove into him, and finally, one brother that was there, he says, oh, that's enough, Brad, and pulled me off. Pulled me off the conversation. It was just verbal. It wasn't aggressive, physical or anything. So anyway, it's Monday, Thursday. I'm going to this little Methodist church, and we're having a communion service that night, and I couldn't wait to get there, and I get there. But this man, my heart is all tore up about this. All day long, I'm thinking about how I treated this brother. <laughs> but I just disliked him. <laughs> and so anyway, so anyway, I go to communion. I go to communion, and... We're supposed to look at our hearts and see where we're at. And I'm just troubled with, I'm just so under conviction about how I've treated this brother. 
And I say to myself, I'm praying while I'm preparing to take communion, expecting Jesus to meet me in this. And I said, Lord, I, I, I've done wrong. I've sinned against my brother. And I need to make it right. Will you help me make it right? And I felt this sense of freedom come. And I took the communion. Little did I know, now here's the rest of the story. Little did I know, I was working at the airport the next morning, and I, and I promised too that the, the very first time I see this brother, I'll make it right with him, is what I said. That was my vow in my prayer. And so I'd go up to work. I was working at the airport, redoing the inside of it, and this brother worked on way on the down, other side of downtown. And I drive up to get out for work. I park my truck, and I get out, and I see this brother. He pulls up into the parking lot of the airport. And he's across the road from me, you know, the little the roadway there. And I thought, how strange. And I walk over and I go, his name was Gary. It doesn't matter, 40 years ago, he's long, he's gone. So <laughs> he's out of the picture. He's, so I go across the street and I go, I go, Gary, what are you doing here? And he goes, he's looking around, and he goes, I have no idea. He goes, I don't know why I drove up here. And man, I mean, I knew. I mean, talk about the weighty, felt presence of Jesus at that moment. And I said, I, I humbled myself. And here's the thing. I had prayed forgiveness, but my opinion of him had not yet changed uh, completely. And so I said, Gary, I humbled myself and I said, Gary, the way I treated you yesterday was wrong and I, I sinned against you and I, I'm asking your forgiveness for that. And this is what he does. He goes, I knew that you would see it my way. The, um, the level of sinful humanity that rose up in me at that moment was unbelievable. And I did just like those disciples. Help me, Jesus. In that Help me, Jesus. And all of a sudden, it just went away. And I walked over, he, I said our dues, I walked over and put my hand on the door and a flush of God's power hit me so much that I could, my knees almost buckled when I set my hands on the door. And this energy just filled my body. And I thought, oh my, I felt afraid that if someone touched me, they would get hurt. I felt so electric. It was the most amazing thing. And I walked inside, and when I was walking through, I just, I just took a walk up even through the tarmac. I, I was so enraptured in this moment, and I, and I, and I just looked at them. I, I was looking at people, and they all looked so lost, and my heart was just broken for them. I, they just looked like zombies walking with their suitcases. And I just myself, oh my gosh, I got all the way up to the end of the tarmac, and this maintenance guy come walking out and walks up to me, and he goes, do you know Jesus? He thought, I don't even know the guy. He just jumps out and he says, do you know Jesus? And I looked up at him and I said, he's my Lord and master. I love him with all my heart. That's what I said. And he just like, whoa. And, you know, and so we talked for a minute. And he says, it, it, was, you know, it was like early in the morning, but he says, at noon, come and eat lunch with us. So I got the whole staff of the maintenance people down there for lunch. And I get a whole hour telling them Jesus stories out of the thing. That's my story. It was wonderful. 
But you see, there's a lot in the story and these disciples and, and what Jesus did for these guys, he will do for me, he will do for you. I think we... We're condensed on time. I do want to march through this because I want you to get the end of the story. They go, he takes them down to Capernaum and he says, I tell you the truth, he's preaching in the... Oh, no, he does. And let me read John 6, 28 through 34. They replied, and I'm basically just going to read these scriptures and make a summation. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? The people have followed him around to the other side and have met him over there, and he's near Capernaum now. It says, they replied, the people, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told him, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread, to, bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. John 6, 47 through 51, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread that I, which I offer will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And man, this lit the match. When they said that, and they're like, oh no. For the Jews to eat the flesh, drink blood, uh, um, no, uh-uh. Not happening. And it does, and it breaks out, the arguing breaks out. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus continues on. He keeps telling the story. He's in the middle of this huge conflict. His disciples are standing around watching this. And they're all struggling with it, even his disciples. In John 6, 60 through 64, it says, many of his disciples says, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? What will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. Human effort accomplishes nothing. It's the Spirit alone that bears fruit that remains. It is the works and the acts of God by His Holy Spirit that causes life to break out and to flourish in the world. It's not by our effort. It's by His strength. It's by His life and vitality. And so this place of His weighty feltness, that felt sense of His glory is something we need to hunger for and reach for and submit to. John 6, 60 through 64, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. Who can accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to him, does this offend you? The word tells us that Jesus' disciples turned away. 
and they deserted after this. Many of them did. Perhaps he'd killed too many sacred cows in this whole discourse. I encourage you to go back and read all of John 6 and see the whole discourse. I mean, Jesus is, is slaying sacred cows one after another. And he, is, he has gone, it's like, it's, a par, it's paramount to brave hearts when, they, when his soldiers said, where are you going? And he says, I'm going down to pick a fight. That's what Jesus did right here. And so, we hear that Jesus pulls away, which is his way always. It's what he does. He'll do it after, after a situation, you'll have time to think through it. It's almost like a debriefing, and that's what he does. And he pulls them, he pulls his disciples aside, and he says, because many of them are leaving, and he asks his 12 close ones, are you going to leave too? A clarifying question. I remember when I was first trying to come to sobriety, and there was one old wise and old guy in that group, and every week he'd always say, you know, um, he'd say, look around the room, 80% of you are going to die drunk. Is it going to be you? And every week I answered that in my heart. It's not going to be me. And that's what this effect has too. Are you going to leave? And so Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. Brothers and sisters, there's nowhere else to go. There just isn't. <laughs> nowhere else to go. Jesus, has, Jesus alone has the words of life. It's not without cost, though. Living in glory, that felt presence, it's exciting. I think it's life's best adventure myself, but it's not without cost. Jesus said we must lose our self-determined life, take up a cross, and follow him. In other words, let him lead us into liminal space, the place of change and transformation. Your highest best thought is far below God's highest best thought. His ways are not your ways. He has a good future for you. He has eternal life laid up for you. We shall inherit everything. It's awesome. This is a great thing. And so we take up our cross and we follow him. And we join him in a meal. I don't know if you know, but this right here is the new Passover. This is what Jesus did. He obliterated the old and gave us a meal. And this is our Passover right here that makes us the covenant people of God, the the adopted ones who can receive this grace and glory. And so I ran over a little bit, but I'm done. So... (laughs) 